This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so we get to see what it's like now that some of the economic promises that a candidate named Donald Trump made are actually being kept now that he is president. He promised there would be tax reform, and now we have tax reform. He promised that regulations would be cut, and regulations are being cut. Uh, when it comes to trade policy, we are not sure yet where that is going. But what is the upshot? Who is feeling great and who is not feeling great? And who might yet feel great? Well, in all of this, we think we have the makings of a debate. And so that's what we are going to do. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. And the name of this debate is Unresolved, America's Economic Outlook. For this one, we are using the format that we uh, call Unresolved, in which five debaters, uh, each superbly qualified but ready to disagree with the other, will argue independently. In other words, there are no teams in this debate, uh, and not on just one resolution resolution, but on a series of them. So please, let's welcome to the stage our esteemed debaters. First, Jason Furman, Jillian Tett, Stephen Moore, Dambisa Moyo, and Simon Johnson. And I'd like to start with a little chat with our debaters, starting with Jason Furman. Jason, welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Uh, you spent eight years uh, in the Obama administration. You were one of his chief economic advisors, uh, in fact, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. You're now at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Jason, just a little bit of a f little flashback uh, for, for just a second. When you look back at the Obama administration, we're just curious what policy, what economic policy you think will be most influential in defining his legacy? Um, I think the Affordable Care Act wasn't just about health insurance. It was a really important step in a large fraction of the U.S. economy, which will be felt in years and decades to come. Okay, thanks very much. And I want to turn to Jillian Tett. Jillian, you have been writing about the global economy for more than two decades, including at the Financial Times, where currently uh, you are U.S. managing editor. You're a best-selling author. Your most recent book, The Silo Effect, uh, which looks at the global economy through the lens of cultural anthropology, which sounds fascinating. Also fascinating, uh, whether everybody here knows it or not, uh, you were the person who famously interviewed President Trump uh, when he declared that he was ready to go unilaterally against North Korea if he had to. Big, big headline at the time. But when it comes to the economy, uh, Jillian, if we're to make reference in this debate here to the president's core economic philosophy. Do we even know exactly what that is? Uh, well, nothing quite as dramatic as finding Pyongyang on a map. But um, I'd say probably make American real estate great again. I think we've heard that before. Exactly. <laughs> right, and thanks, create lots of jobs for Trump supporters. <laughs> All right. And Stephen Moore, uh, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You're a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You advised President Trump during his campaign. Uh, you are also one of the architects of the GOP tax reform that we're going to be talking about. Um, and in recent months, you have been uh, critical of the mainstream media, uh, Stephen, in how it's covered President Trump. In a nutshell, what do you say, think that commentators are getting wrong about the president? Um, my advice is look what he does and don't listen to what he says because I think his actions speak louder than words. I'm one of these people who would love to take his thumbs away so he couldn't tweet so much. Uh, but look, I mean, his actions, I think, were, are important and not his words. Okay, thank you, Stephen Moore. And Dambisa Moyo, a global economist, another best-selling author. We have a lot of them on the panel tonight. Currently, you're serving on the board of Barclays Bank, Barrick Gold, and Chevron. You have a book coming out, Edge of Chaos, Why Democracy is Failing to Deliver Economic Growth and How to Deliver It. It's coming out in April. Uh, in one sentence, just a preview, what's the new book about? So my book offers 10 radical reforms. That's 10 radical reforms to meaningfully change democracy, liberal democracy, so that we can actually generate sustainable, long-term economic growth in a more equitable fashion. Thank you very much, Tembi Samoya. And finally, Simon Johnson. Um, again, welcome back. You're a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Simon, a senior fellow also at the Peterson Institute, former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. Your book, uh, White House Burning, The Founding Fathers, Our National Debt, and Why It Matters to You, 
Simon, in a sentence, why does the national debt matter to me? Because, John, great civilizations have been brought down by issuing too much debt in an incautious manner. Let's not do that. Okay, might be a topic that comes up tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, one more time, our panel of debaters. Uh, To remind you, so again, of how this is going to work, um, we're going to be working through a series of resolutions, three of them, one at a time, and on each of these motions, the debaters will be asked to state their position in the moment, yes or no. 2018 uh, begins with a new world of taxation, thanks to the just-passed tax reform whose detractors call it a gift to the rich, whose supporters see it as the starting point for a new era of spreading prosperity. Well, which is it? Our first resolution, the GOP tax reform bill, now law, will improve our outlook for growth. Our first debater is Simon Johnson. On this resolution, the GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. Do you declare yes or no? No. John, I think the way to think about this tax cut... I think the word reform is uh, somewhat overused in this context. This tax cut is focused on old capital. If you own a building, for example, a large building with a lot of apartments in New York City, should you be so lucky, then you're going to do very well from this tax cut. That's old capital. That's capital that's already in place. The new capital, the capital that builds companies, the support that we get for research and development, that is not going up. I think that's going to get actually squeezed when you take the entire tax picture. And when you consider, John, All of the issues here, including the distributional impact, including the incentives to ordinary working people to go to college, to get more education, to invest in themselves in order to participate with new capital as partners in economic growth, this tax reform at best is a zero. I think it could be somewhat negative. If you own a building around the corner or down by Central Park, congratulations. We move on to Jason Furman. Uh, Jason Furman, on the resolution, the GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. Do you declare yes or no? Um, John, I declare no. Let me get out of the way. This tax cut's going to shovel $200 billion into the economy this year. That will help the economy this year by a small amount and a transitory amount. What it won't do is improve our outlook for long-run growth. Simon got to the very core reason for that. It's a windfall for investments people have already made. It's not very much of an incentive for new investments. In addition to that, this tax bill will balloon the deficit. The deficit next year will be more than a trillion dollars. It will stay more than a trillion dollars going forward. We've had large deficits before when fighting wars in very deep recessions. We have never, ever had a deficit, anything like this, as a share of the economy in peacetime. So whatever benefits you get from the rate reductions will be more than outweighed by the deficit reduction. The last thing I'd say is this isn't just my judgment. This is the judgment of the FOMC, which hasn't changed its long-run outlook. None of the major investment banks have. A survey of 42 economists, zero of them said it would have a large impact on long-run growth because they all understood it's a benefit for old capital that will swell the deficit and cost us in terms of research. The resolution, the GOP tax reform bill, will improve our outlook for growth. Jillian Ted, how do you declare? Well, I'm going to declare yes, partly because I want to make this debate a bit more interesting. Um, but we, also because... We so appreciate that. So thank you. <laughs> um, but also because I'd like to shift the perspective. As it happens, if you look at the long run, I share many of the concerns that Jason and Simon have raised. However, I would also like to say that in the short term... There are benefits coming down this year. I do think it has helped to ignite animal spirits. And as someone who did indeed train as a cultural anthropologist, um, not an economist, as somebody who's in the, in the information game and spends a lot of time as a journalist overseeing a newspaper looking at sentiment, I actually think that um, sentiment matters a lot. This has helped to ignite animal spirits. It has also helped to create a sense of optimism. And there's also a sense of narrative around what's going on with the economy. There hasn't been a sense of clear-cut narrative for a long time. So that's a kind of qualified yes, at least to inject a bit more debate and dynamism into this debate. And I'm sure the next speaker will have a thorough yes. Thank you, Gillian Ted. That next speaker is Stephen Moore. Stephen, on the resolution, the GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. Are you yes or no? 
I'm going to say no. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I helped write the bill, so of course I'm a yes. Um, look, I think that uh, that giant sucking sound you're hearing um, is from the United States is sucking capital from the rest of the world. I agree with these two gentlemen that capital is the name of the game. Uh, whoever has the most capital wins. Uh, we have made dramatic improvements in our um, global competitive situation. When we started writing this bill, Two years ago, the whole idea was how do we make American businesses more competitive? Um, I do believe that our highest in the world corporate tax rate was one of the dumbest things in the world. It was a, it was a head start program for all the countries that we compete with. We've fixed that big time. We've gone from the highest statutory tax rate in the world to below the average. That's going to bring a lot of jobs and factories back to the United States. Uh, we did the repatriation so companies can bring, uh, we don't know how much, one or $2 trillion back to the United States. That's a huge benefit. Prior to January 1st, the highest tax rate on small businesses was 40%. It's now down to 30%. We're going to see a lot more jobs. We're going to see a lot more investment. Um, and I think that confidence that you talked about, which I agree with, that optimism is in no small part a result of this tax bill. Thank you, Stephen Moore. Dan Bisamoyo on the resolution, the GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. Yes or no? I'm going to go with no. Of course, one of the, the problems with being the last speaker is that a lot of the comments have been made. But perhaps let me just underscore what I think is a, a lot of smoke and mirrors with short-term focus, which is driven really by a political cycle that actually rewards and encourages people to focus on the short term. If you focus on the short term as a household or as a corporate, you are missing the broader point. The future generations are going to grapple with a tremendous suite of challenges, many of them we're fully aware of. Technology and the jobless underclass, the risks of income inequality widening, the fact that demographics are growing at rapid clip around the world. We have 8 billion people, will be 11 billion people by 2100, and we don't know how to manage that population. Issues around natural resource scarcity. And then finally, the fact that productivity has declined in many of the most developed countries around the world. It's this suite of problems that are continuing to be a drag on long-term economic growth. And if you believe that a short-term tax is going to actually solve these problems or, or actually meaningfully turn things around, um, you're sadly mistaken. Thank you, Tembi Samoyo. And we'll have more debate on this motion. The GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Our program today is Unresolved, America's Economic Outlook. Before the break, we heard from five panelists, each of whom took a position, yes or no, on our first motion. The GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. We have um, three no's and two yeses. And I think an interesting thing about this format is that all of the people who are saying no are not actually saying no for precisely the same reasons, and the yeses are not yeses for the same reason. But a a thing that I kept hearing about was the long-term versus short-term impact of this. And uh, Jason Furman, you you talked about the deficit being uh, ballooned, and I didn't think that Stephen Moore responded to that. And I kind of like Stephen for you to respond to the concern that many of your co-panelists raised that not in the not-too-distant future, uh, the, there's going to be hell to pay for this tax plan. So I'm of the view, and I don't know if Donald Trump agrees with this, but that growth is everything, that growth solves all the problems, and the very problems that you're talking about. It, it may not um, solve every problem you're talking about, but if you have faster economic growth and prosperity, it makes all these problems easier to solve. And the deficit is, you know, exhibit A on this. Um, the forecast when Donald Trump entered office was we continue to have weak economic growth as we did for the last 10 years. It was 1.8% growth forecast. We went to Donald Trump and said, 
Donald, if we get 1.8% growth for the next 10 or 20 years, we're screwed. <laughs> we have, we can't, we're America, we can't live for, with 1.8%. We've got to get it up to 3 to 4%. Um, I believe we're going to do that with this bill. I think we can get, we already have had 3% growth, and the debt as a share of our economy does not go up every year. It goes down every year if we can get to 3 to 3.5% 3 growth. And that's, that would be my kind of response to this issue of, that you Jason, both raised can, about can that. can you respond back to that? Sure. First of all, we have to understand the sources of our growth. The primary source of our slower growth than we had in the past is demography. In the 1980s, the baby boom generation was going through their prime working years. Starting in 2008, the first baby boomers turned 62 and started to retire as they became eligible for Social Security. If we were able to reproduce the same exact productivity growth that we had under President Reagan, under today's demography, we would have a 1.7% growth rate. Thinking you can have a 3 or 4% growth rate is a ludicrous fantasy. The second thing I'd say is to say that this tax cut pays for itself is to make a statement that has zero support in the economics profession. It's akin to saying... Let me stop you on that and, and let Julian respond as a yes. Do you dispute that point? No, I was going to say one thing about the other way to get around a big rapid growth is to have lots of migration. If you don't have lots of babies, oh, you can have lots of migration. And that policy is not exactly on the table right now. Um, Especially <laughs> if you come from S-hole countries like I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I had one point to make about the debt, which is that the only reason why debt has been moderately manageable recently is because interest rates have been incredibly low. If you believe that there is going to be growth of the sort that you're arguing there's going to be, then interest rates will almost certainly go up. And if interest rates go up, if they go from 1.8% to 3%, say, you're basically looking at a doubling of the annual cost of the servicing that debt. Anyone in the room who's got credit card debt or mortgages knows how it works. And so there's a fundamental intellectual contradiction. If you think that there's going to be great growth, rates go up, and then the cost of servicing that debt gets harder and harder. Simon Johnson. So just to develop that point, animal spirits, Gillian uh, rightly emphasizes, come in two forms. One is let's invest, and we may see that in stock prices. There's also animal spirits in the bond market. So what does the bond market say? The bond market is worried about inflation for exactly these reasons. When the bond market worries about inflation, interest rates go up, and that's pressure on, on Stephen. I hope you're right, Stephen, because then we're all going to live better. But I fear you're up against the same economic realities, the same constraints as we've all been up against. And by the way, the uh, Obama administration broke 3%, in fact, broke 4% growth for at least two quarters. I think in 2014, quarterly growth tells you nothing. The long-run growth, that's what we're talking about, is exactly, as Jason said, is driven by demographics, and the budget is going to matter. The debt is eventually going to catch up with us. Tambisa Moyo, you made the point that the, the set of real problems is, are, are larger and much more complicated than a tax cut can address. Have you heard anything from the people on the other side of this resolution tonight who have made a persuasive case to the contrary? Not at all. Um, and I think just picking up on the demographic um, point, just to underscore how difficult and how challenging this is in the U.S. context, we need to think about not just the quantity of people in the workforce, but also the quality of the people in the workforce. You don't have to believe me. Go and look at the OECD PISA statistics. They have an annual survey, the PISA survey, that looks at how people, young people perform in mathematics, in science, and in reading. The United States, 10 years ago, was in the top three. Today, it's ranked in nearly number 30 around the world. And you cannot have a country long-term that is expected to be successful just because you have a short-term tax cut. When you have underinvested in a population that you expect is going to contribute to long-term so economic growth. So let me bring your point then to Stephen Moore. Stephen, again... Stephen, does this tax cut actually do something to ameliorate the, the challenges that, that Dembisa is just speaking about? Well, which challenge are you talking about? I mean, in particular, the... The, the, the applause line just then. The, the <laughs> um, I am of the belief that we are at the beginning of a productivity revolution. You know, that we could see the greatest period of you know, uh, productivity in history. I mean, we're seeing it in automation, we're seeing it in um, robotics, uh, and, and that, 
is part of the, I think, the explanation about how you get to higher growth. Now, of course, we need more human capital investment, no question about it. And Donald Trump, I think, quite correctly wants to, to move us towards a merit-based immigration system where we can get, you know, the people who have the highest skills, highest talents, the people who have excellence in whatever rate it is. That gives us a great advantage to achieve okay. this high rate of growth. Let me bring Jason in and then Jillian to finish this sure. section. I mean, first of all, I, I think it... All right, you can wait. Let him have his moment. <laughs> I wanted to get back to the animal spirits question, because that's going to come up in this session. I'll bet the next one as well. Um, animal spirits, first of all, they're not self-sustaining. They can help you for a bit, but then if they're not justified by real activity, they can send you crashing back down. They're a little bit dangerous. Second of all, I'm not so sure how much of them we do have in the United States. John, I don't know what you invest in. Maybe you invested in U.S. equities over the last year. If you did, you did pretty well in the U.S. stock market. You would have done even better in the UK stock market, the German stock market, the French stock market, the Canadian stock market, the Japanese stock market. Jason, so you've I, seen a lot more animal spirits in the global economy. To okay. say it's all due to a tax cut here in the United States, I think, is... Thank you. I wanted you to circle it back to that yeah. tax question. And I'm, I'm going to give the last word on this section to Gillian Ted. I just want to come to this issue of animal spirits again because I have enormous... Define it for us, what you mean by that. For it basically means how you feel. And if you get excited, you want to rush out and buy a new car, a new jacuzzi, whatever else, start investing, that kind of stuff. And I have great respect for economists and their wonderful models and all their numbers and all their data. But at the end of the day, most of us live economics through not just our wallet, but through stories. And I strongly believe that one reason why the Democrats lost the last election was they had no clear-cut story. Trump, for better or worse, had a story that he could tweet out, if you like. When I talk to people you know, who are not grown-up economists sitting in debates like this, there's a sense that actually the story is changing. And you might disagree with that. You might say the data doesn't back that up. You might say they're going to be disappointed. But right now, if you look not just at, at the stock market, if you look at polls of consumer confidence and corporate confidence, it has risen dramatically. And that is a story that really matters. Thank you, Julian Ted. And that is a wrap on this resolution. The GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. The resolution now is this. Deregulation is driving the booming economy. Jillian Ted, on the resolution, deregulation is driving the booming economy. Do you declare yes or no? I would declare no because I think it's one factor that has fed into that story, but certainly not the only one and not necessarily the major one. I have sat in the um, Commerce Department. I've seen the flashy plans and statistics being you know, tossed around about how many rules they're going to rip up left, right, and center Yes, deregulation is important because there was a creeping sense under the last few years that excessive regulation was trying to, if you like, dampen down growth. But if you talk to companies about which regulations they really care about, the picture is so mixed right now that I certainly don't see that as a major factor driving investment plans, or at least not compared to the other elements which are uh, contributing to the optimism. Thank you, Gillian Ted. We move on now to Stephen Moore. Stephen Moore, on the question, deregulation is driving the booming economy. Are you yes or no? Well, I'm an emphatic yes. Um, I think that when you ask the question, why did we hit this inflection point? And I don't think there's any question as we look back, there was an inflection point in the economy, and it was November 7, 2016. And you saw what happened to the stock market. The stock market rose 700 points the day after the election. Um, and, and that didn't happen by accident. I think it, it happened um, partly because of the anticipation of this tax cut. But I think an even bigger factor was that, um, as my buddy Larry Kudlow likes to say, on, on November 7, 2016, the war against business was over in Washington. And that is um, a good example of that is what Trump has done with regulations. And it isn't even so much the... Uh, pullback of regulations, um, because there haven't been that many regulations have been pulled back, but some important ones. It's more that it, Trump has just slammed the brakes on the regulatory process. And that has, um, I think, unleashed a lot of um, activity by businesses in terms of their capital spending, in terms of their hiring, and so on. Pulling back on those regulations will, uh, will be another factor that has a very positive impact on our future growth in this country. Thank you, Stephen Moore. Dambisa Moyo, on the resolution, deregulation is driving the booming economy. Do you declare yes or no? I declare yes, um, but not emphatically. Um, and this is, to me, once again, smoke and mirrors. We were promised 
a group of policy changes um, which actually swept Donald Trump into the presidency. We were promised infrastructure reform. We were promised tax reform, um, including repatriation by corporates um, at, a, at a discounted rate. We were promised health care reform. And on the back of that, we have basically seen the market um, decide that the, the, the promises of deregulation were going to be so aggressive that they were going to support, at least in the short term, economic growth. These are Band-Aid solutions. Today, a lot of people are hanging around saying monetary policy is loose. We're still seeing um, lots of promises in terms of fiscal policy and the path of deregulation. And that, to me, is not founded on a solid ground. I, I believe that the deregulation is the promise. It's not yet actually happened. And therefore, I believe that deregulation will be ultimately the downfall of this economy. Thank you, Debbie Samayel. Simon Johnson, deregulation is driving the booming economy. Are you yes or no? No. I, I agree with Stephen that there has been an inflection point in this economy recently. It was in early 2009 when the Obama administration turned the corner with a great deal of help from the Federal Reserve, and we pulled out of the greatest recession. You're reading into my 90 seconds. We had the greatest recession since the 1930s. We pulled out of it. The stock market came back. If President Obama had a fault, it was he didn't talk about the stock market enough. That was the most, the most consecutive quarters of job growth you have seen, anyone has ever seen in American history. That was the inflection point. And in the midst, how did they make that recovery happen? They did a lot of things. But I tell you, one of the things that they did with it is they fixed finance. Yes, they took a hard look at consumer protection and the way people have been ripped off. They looked at systemic risk and the way that some of our very good friends in this city had got too big to fail. So it's not deregulation driving growth today. It's the responsible, moderate regulation of finance, along with sensible short-term and reasonable but not sufficient, perhaps, long-term growth measures that's given us this opportunity that President Trump and his advisors are now about to squander. Thank you. Thank you, Simon Johnson. Jason Furman, deregulation driving the booming economy. Do you declare yes or no? Um, I declare no. Um, I was going to establish my credibility by criticizing President Obama. Simon already made one of the criticisms. He was terrible about tweeting about his stock market record, even though the year after his re-election, the stock market went up more than it did under President Trump, um, there were precisely zero tweets um, from President Obama in that year. If you want to tout up what's happened under deregulation under this administration, you have two choices of sources that I'm aware of. One is the White House did a report that documented the total cost reduction from all their regulations. They said it was $570 million dollars. That's 0.003% of GDP. It's a White House number. I divide it by two. The last thing I'd say is the key to a successful economy is not to be pro-business. It's to be pro-market. And being pro-market often means regulating businesses, having antitrust, having competition, having rules so that people can play fair, um, compete in a way that's good for the economy, not just for their shareholders. Thank you. Thank you, Jason Furman. One thing that's a little bit unclear to me as we have uh, three no's and two yeses on the motion, deregulation is driving the booming economy. Are, are you all saying that you don't think there's actually been any significant deregulation undertaken yet in any meaningful way? I'll go first to you, Stephen Moore. You, you said well, you made the point not much yet. To some well, I'll, just, I'll just mention one you know, that I think has had a, is going to have a very positive impact on the economy, and that is the rollback of what's called the net neutrality rules. Now, that, by some estimates, is, that's by some estimates uh, and it gets to Simon's point about you know, um, more capital investment. Um, there's good indications that we could see four, five, six billion dollars of new infrastructure spending by Verizon, AT&T, and other uh, uh, companies as a result of that one deregulation. So if you want to see the real-world effects of, of a deregulation, that's one. I'll just mention one other one is the coal. The coal industry is back big time. We've seen something like 50,000 increase in coal jobs. We've seen um, a 12% increase in coal production in the United States the last year. That doesn't sound like a dying industry. And that industry is back in part because of deregulation. Simon Johnson. Yeah, the, the, uh, 
the, the, the change in net neutrality... You stick which, by your guns up there. <laughs> the, the, the change in net neutrality, which, which is a huge deal, is not deregulation. That's changing the nature of regulation to favor some very big incumbent players. So it's a redistribution. That, that's, that's the theme of the policies here. The tax changes we've just been talking about are a redistribution. Four-fifths of all the tax changes, cuts, will end up going to the top 1%. Net neutrality being abolished is the equivalent in communication policy space of exactly the same thing. Redistribution towards the top end, towards people who are already rich. That's not deregulation. Jason? Uh, let, me, um, let me talk about one deregulatory action that I think actually has helped the stock market. There's a chance it would have a minuscule positive for growth, but it's a terrible idea. Um, That's something called the conflict of interest rule or the fiduciary rule, which it used to be that a retirement broker could give you advice based on kickbacks they were getting rather than your own self-interest. Obama made a rule against that. Our rule is going to end up costing, would have ended up costing, um, the brokerage is probably about $1.5 billion a year. But by delaying and potentially gutting that rule, the Trump administration will take money from the middle class, give money to corporations. You might see the stock market go up. You might see some tiny help to growth, but people are going to be much worse off as a result of that. And that's why no regulation is based on just looking at the cost side. You balance the costs and the benefits. Regulation is fantastically complex and in the weeds. And deregulation is also fantastically complex in the weeds. And the reality is that we don't really know exactly what is going on, let alone what the net cumulative economic effect is going to be. And we won't know for a long time. Because, you know, I've learned to treat the Trump administration as being something like an Agatha Christie novel or film, (laughs) in that you know whenever you get a commotion in the kitchen, you start looking for a body in the library. (laughs) And what the president's doing with his tweets is the ultimate weapon of mass distraction. And when it comes to deregulation, things are happening in the weeds or not happening in the weeds. The one thing that's very clear, though, and this is a cost that no one's talking about, is that as we start ripping up rules, as we start talking about ripping up rules, for businesses, the climate just got a bit more uncertain and confusing. You're listening to Unresolved America's Economic Outlook, a program from Intelligence Squared U.S. When we come back, our panelists will take on one final motion. Is the stock market too high? Stay with us. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Today, our esteemed panel of five debaters is taking on three separate motions related to the financial state of America. We rejoin our debate on this resolution. Deregulation is driving the booming economy. Here is Stephen Moore, a former economic advisor to President Trump, responding to criticisms lobbed against Trump's economic policies. So, look, I think there's a narrative that's gone on um, by people who like some of the people at this table who, when, when Donald Trump was running for election, said that if Donald Trump is elected, he will cause a financial crisis in the world. Uh, you know, we'll, we could have a second Great Depression. And, of course, exactly the opposite has happened. You know, we've seen this. For the stock market is up 42% since November 7, 2016. That's $6.5 trillion increase in wealth. And now liberals have to come up with some kind of alternative narrative as to why the policies they said were going to fail have been such a success. Let me go to Jason, Steve, and I'll come to you. Jason, Jason Furman. If you were... If you were doing a clinical trial for medicine, you wouldn't just give it to one patient and look at them. You'd compare them to how the others were doing. This is the second time you brought up the stock market, but the stock market has done better in most every other country in the world than it has in the United States over the past year. The United States is the hub of the world economy. When we get it right, the rest of the world starts to get it right. There's no, it's the same thing that happened. It's the same thing that happened in the 1980s. I mean, when when Reagan rebuilt the American economy, the rest of the world got their act together and we had a 25 year period of the greatest period of prosperity in the history of the world. But Steve, our growth rate was actually higher. This past year, it's been lower. George W. Bush had some good years, too. The, the, best way, the best way to get growth, deregulate finance, let the banks do what they want, let them take more risk, let them have less equity on their balance sheet, let them go crazy. If I get the financial sector fired up, I will get short-term growth. 
And then, what happens, Stephen? What, ha- what does the Wall Street Journal say will happen? They say that you will have a downturn. They say you'll have a crash. Now, if Stephen Moore is willing to say here today and for the record that as long as the stock market goes up, everything is good and Trump is doing fine, and as soon as the stock market turns down, we have to reevaluate, I'll take that. I'll walk away very happy this evening because you know what? Prices go up, prices go down. No, that's Stephen. a fair point. That's right. And I'm don't, not here to say so, the stock market is going to go forever. I mean, it's a fair point. You know, I don't want to um, eat into too much time because actually I was okay. preparing myself to go to battle um, against Simon. But actually, I think we actually largely agree, which is that excessive deregulation is not an equilibrium that we want to seek um, and that the governments were in many ways complicit, aided and abetted um, the financial crisis. A lot of what is on bank balance sheets, even to this day, are massive loans that were made to government in, in municipalities and to local authorities in education, in, uh, particularly in Europe. By the way, how else did they finance their big welfare and social programs? It was because the banks were, through license to trade regu- and regulation, were forced to make loans that actually they knew were not going to long-term be sustainable. So, so, so we there are, is a middle are, We are talking here. a lot about financial regulation and deregulation, but there was environmental also came up very briefly in the mention of coal, and I just want to throw that into the conversation as well. Gillian Ted, if you want it, you have the final word. Oh, well, um, well, this will be a segue into the trade debate because the point I'd make is that if you're looking at the cost of environmental regulation or deregulation, it's worth putting that into an international environment. Because one of the great ironies right now is even as the U.S. deregulates um, or goes backwards in some ways on the environmental side, countries like China are moving forward. And if Donald Trump really does want to make America great again, maybe he should be looking at the competitive aspect of making America green again, too. And that is a wrap on this resolution. Deregulation is driving the booming economy. And we are now moving on to this resolution. The stock market is too high. The first person to take on this issue is Dambisa Moyo. Do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. The underlying growth prospects, which should support corporate activity and long-term investment, are getting much weaker. But perhaps the most important indicator that the stock market, to my mind, is um, overvalued is the fact that the dividend-to-retained earnings ratio, which is the ratio of how much money corporates are giving back to their shareholders versus what they're retaining for more investment, has been over 100% in virtually every sector. This means that our CEOs do not believe that there's a long-term prospect for investment that is actually going to generate um, uh, returns above the cost of capital. Um, We do know that a lot of the support has come from from, uh, low interest rates, uh, loose monetary policy, and to the extent that we are expecting, what the market is expecting, pricing in three rate hikes this year, um, and that means there will be a drain on liquidity in the system, I think that we'll start to see quite a significant correction. Thank you. Dambisa Moyo. The stock market is too high. Simon Johnson, do you declare yes or no? I say no. I, I'm an immigrant to this country. I see a couple of other immigrants on the panel with me. And, and I, how many people in the audience here are immigrants, were not born in the United States? Only in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, see, I see about a quarter of, that, about uh-huh. a quarter of hands go up. What, what an incredible country. What an incredible country. They can bring people here, they can give them opportunity, they can put them to work, and they can have them pay tax. What is the stock market? The stock market is the value of the profits, the future profits, expected profits of all the companies that are based in your country. The the fundamental value of of that is you. It's you as consumers. It's you as workers. It's you as families. Now, I happen to think that the policies of this president, if if I may use the technical term, as he the kind of term he likes to use, I think his policies are rubbish. (laughs) Doesn't matter. We're having the discussion. We will work it out. We will be a greater country, a bigger country with more profits. And eventually, that drives stock prices. Eventually, not commenting on short-term stock prices, ever. (laughs) We will get there after this president. Thank you, Simon Johnson. Stock market is too high. Jason Furman, do you declare yes or no? I'm going to declare no for exactly the opposite reason that (laughs) Simon um, declared no. Both grounded in the same equation, which is the stock market is the present discounted value of corporate profits. Corporate profits are the fraction of GDP that goes to corporations. That fraction has risen a lot in the last 15 years. I would expect that fraction to rise more still. Things like the 
corporate tax cut that we've seen will raise that fraction. The second thing that justifies a higher stock valuation is the denominator in that equation, which is the discount rate. That's taking things from the future, moving them back to the present. The way you do that is you look at what your alternatives are, and your alternatives right now are bonds, which have an even lower rate of return. The flip side of this high valuation, though, is a low expected return in the stock market going forward. It costs us about $27 for each dollar of future earnings that we're generating. That's an underlying rate of return closer to 3 or 4 than the 8% we've gotten historically in the stock market. Thank you, Jason Furman. Jillian Tett, the stock market is too high, yes or no? Um, well, just to get some more debate, I would say yes, um, because one reason why the kind of numbers that Jason's been talking about make sense is if you believe that interest rates are going to stay low for a long, long time. And if you think that interest rates are going to stay low, then you have to believe that central banks will keep pumping up the global economy by keeping policy super loose for a very, very long time. So I think that sooner or later, central banks will be forced to start reining that in. When that happens, I think people will be shocked. I think we've been living with this impression of calm for a long time, which has been partly pumped up by what central banks are doing. And I think that as interest rates do go up, then stock markets will start to look a lot less attractive. Thank you, Gillian Tett. The stock market is too high. Stephen Moore, do you declare yes or no? Well, I'm going to say a non-emphatic no. First of all, let me say I can hardly improve on what you said, Simon. I agreed with virtually every word you said except the stuff about rubbish and Trump. <laughs> but other than that, no, look, I think you, you put it very well. You invest in the stock market because you're investing in America. You have optimism about, about, about this great country. And so uh, I have no idea what's going to happen with the stock market next week or next month or even a year from now. But I do know that the long-term rate of return on the stock market for the last 120 years is 7% real. The, only, the final point I want to make about this is it's a point that Simon made earlier, which I think is true. Donald Trump ultimately will not be judged by voters in terms of what happened to the stock market. He will be judged as to whether he can improve the real economy for people in those states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin and West Virginia and Kentucky, people that frankly didn't feel recovery under Obama. And if, if uh, Trump is to be a success, he's got to bring hope and economic development to those areas. Thank you, Stephen Moore. Let's discuss. I'm interested in the last point you just made, Stephen Moore, and I want to bring it to Jason Furman, that you, you do not feel that President Trump will be judged by how folks do in the stock market. Jason Furman, you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, about half of the country is not invested in the stock market at all, directly or indirectly. What people care about are jobs and wages. And wage growth right now um, is about 0.4. That's slowed from the real wage growth that we had had in um, the last four years of the Obama administration. Unless that real wage growth um, picks up, it's you know, not going to be very pretty for a lot of people in this economy. We heard a lot in all of your comments about the role played by interest rates and how they've been low for a long time. Jillian Tatt, you made the argument that you think people kind of think that's normal because it's been going on for such a long time. Um, but outgoing uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen uh, said that uh, the weakness in 2017 inflation ratings are not going to be permanent. So should we be worried about inflation in 2018, Dumbi Samoyo. So um, we are already seeing inflation in some places. The UK has already seen an impact, uh, an uptick in inflation. Um, if you look historically at booms and busts, certainly through the 20th century, um, on average, and I'm sure my colleagues here will, will correct me, um, the sort of trough to uh, growth is, is around a six-year cycle. We're now as far as I'm concerned, eight years into this, I think that the inflation picture um, and the risk of inflation um, does mean that we have a, a series of rate hikes, not just in the United States, but I think um, an inflation around the world will mean that there's, um, there's sort of a, a setup for a, a more challenging economic picture. Jillian, your take on that same question? Um, well, I'd agree with what Dan Bisa says. And I come back to this core point. Somehow, very stealthily, very quietly, central banks has slipped an extra $10 trillion into the global financial system. And they've essentially taken a patient that was addicted to heroin, i.e. private sector credit, all those subprime mortgages, and weaned them off that by giving it morphine instead. 
And eventually, that is going to have to come to an end. So, and withdrawal so. is never nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to call that a wrap on discussion of this resolution. The resolution, the stock market is too high. Um, but you each come from, a diff- from different places, from different professional backgrounds, from different ideological persuasions. So as we finish up this evening of debate, the question I want to ask all of you is, what is the biggest challenge facing the economy in 2018? You know, I, I think that's a tough question, but I'm going to go with, um, I'm very worried that we're making the same kinds of mistake in the housing market that we made in 2006 and 2007 and 2008. And I worry that um, we could see another housing uh, panic. And I, I fervently hope that I'm wrong about that. You know, if we just had a policy 10% down payment, there would, there would never be another housing crisis again. Denby Samoyo. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of going to go against my profession uh, as an economist and say I think that the biggest risk we have is geopolitics. Um, I have to say it's become a veritable jack-in-the-box. Every day you wake up, God knows what's happening, in particular from the United States. And my concern right now is that there's been a lot of credibility lost. Um, I think there's a lot of um, skepticism around the democratic process. Um, there's far too much short-termism. Um, I think that we are too distracted right now with trivialities. And what is at stake is enormous. I think it's actually human progress. Simon Johnson. I'm not sure the last time you had the opportunity to visit the perhaps greatest icon of American democracy. I'm speaking, of course, about the Statue of Liberty in in New York Harbor. The last time I was there, not too long ago, it did not say, send us your well-to-do people who are already well-educated and from nicely run democracies. (laughs) The greatest danger, and my greatest fear, is that we will go massively into an anti-immigrant phase. If you turn against immigrants, and there is a proposal on the table supported by President Trump from two Republican senators to cut legal immigration from a million to half a million. If you do that, your growth targets, Stephen, are going to disappear. You're probably right. Like sand through your fingers. And Jason Furman. Yeah. I have... Um my, my concerns, like Dembiza and, and uh, Simon's, are about the long term. I, I'm less concerned about 2018 than just about any year in the last decade. But if you ask me to actually answer the question of what I'm worried about in 2018, um, it's the lack of fear that I have and so many others have. The price <laughs> of risk right now is very low. Expectations are very high. If those get disappointed, there's a, some chance of a wily coyote moment where you look down and there's nothing beneath you and you keep going down. Thank you, Jason. And Jillian Tett. Well, I would echo much of what Jason and Simon and the others have all said, but I'd like to basically finish by going back to where I started, which is with Pyongyang. Um, I was very struck because I was reading a book about a year ago about the preparations that the U.S. had made for nuclear war back in the 1950s or 60s called Red Mountain. It's a fabulous book, if any any of you want to read it. I remember reading it and thinking, well, this isn't a very well-timed book, is it? And now you look at that and you think about how the discussion has changed in just a year in terms of the threats to the geopolitical order. If you look at things like the fact that Bridgewater, big hedge fund, calculates that proportion of the vote in the West that's gone to populist candidates has jumped up from, from about 7% in 2010 to 35% in 2017. And the only time that swing has ever been seen before was just before World War II. I suspect that if anything's going to derail this sunny economic picture over the next year, it's not going to be something that anyone's going to predict with an economic model. Thank you, all of you, for sharing those insights. Okay, we've asked you to vote two times, both before you heard the arguments again afterwards, uh, to see what uh, arguments ultimately you found most persuasive. So we want to check in on those numbers. On the first resolution that we looked at, the GOP tax reform bill will improve our outlook for growth. Uh, The side arguing against swung over the most people by 15%. It was 37.22, then it was 63.78. That was a net swing of 15% to the no side. The resolution deregulation is driving the booming economy. 
The first vote, it was 27 were yes and 73 were no. In the second vote, it was 16 were yes and 84 were no. It was an 11-point swing to the no side. And finally, the stock market is too high. The first vote was 35% of you saying yes and 65% no. But in the second vote, it was a 50-50 split, 50-50, which means the swing went towards the yes side, that you all here feel the stock market is too high. So let's worry. Listen, I want to I thank all of you for taking part in this. Thanks to this panel. I'm John Donvan from Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at Symphony Space in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Clea Chang is chief operating officer, Leah Mathau is vice president of programming, Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations, Danielle Warren is our research associate, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit us at iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Ryan, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmill. From me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you all very much. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.